Well, welcome to another episode of Fuku Conversation. Again, I'm so excited about the guest that we have today, Dr. Alana Butler from the Faculty of Education at Queen's University, is an assistant professor of at-risk learners and student success. Dr. Alana Butler graduated with a PhD in education from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. Uh, she then joined Queen's University in 2017 and currently teaches in the Bachelor of Education program as well as their grad studies program. Her research interests include the academic achievement of low socioeconomic students, race and schooling, equity and inclusion, and multicultural education. She is the current principal investigator uh, on a 2019 uh, Insight Development Grant from the Social Science and Humanities Research Council of Canada for a study on post-secondary access for low income youth. And she's on several other research projects and has published numerous articles. But before we delve into all of your work, how are you doing? I'm doing great, uh, Nicholas. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's such an honor to be uh, a part of your uh, podcast. Well, welcome to Fukin Conversation. You know, this is episode 49, so I'm so excited. This is amazing. I never, Congratulations. Yeah, I never thought I'd get to uh, episode uh, 49. So this is great. And I'm so honored to have you on here. And I, like I said, before we, we get into your work, I want to know, you know, how has this academic term been for you? We've just come out of a global pandemic last year for us at the University of Ottawa was really the first year for things to open up. But this year was really kind of after experiencing last year and transitioning to where we saw more students on campus, it felt like this year students had the expectation to be on campus as well as professors. And I don't know how that's been for all of you at Queen's University and in Kingston itself. The pandemic was um, really tough for students and it was a challenge uh, for some of the students who had to learn remotely. So that was, you know, just like everywhere else. But I found that uh, students, I think, uh, they miss the social aspect of just being in person in the classroom. So I find that the students really are excited to kind of get together uh, in class and, and meet them. Uh, this year I went to convocation and it was really actually fun to meet some of the students who I had only seen over Zoom. Um, because they they graduated this year and over, you know, I'd only seen them like there was a master's student, for instance, who I, I had worked with for two years. And it was the first time that we met. So that's also been kind of a neat thing is like meeting some people for the first time because of the, the pandemic. Wow, really? And this would have been the first in-person convocation you would have been to. That's right. Yeah. The first in-person convocation that I attended. Yeah. It's it's amazing like the human mind eh? and how quickly we forget like where we were at in 2020 and and what we're trying to do now i i i still feel like that we're coming out of well i, I wouldn't even say coming out i think we're still trying to cope with with what the hell just happened <laughs> globally and and the reverberations of what we're trying to what we experienced uh in the field of education and higher ed itself so i don't, I don't know if you have that same feeling yeah absolutely and especially in my uh 
area too. I remember I did a little interview with uh, a CBC. I think there was a, a radio thing and it was on uh, about COVID-19 and kind of learning loss too. And in particular for students who are from underserved communities who are labeled at, you know, at risk. I don't use the term at risk usually in my, in my work um, because of the labeling. I usually refer to underserved communities and, you know, but students who are from low income or underserved communities, COVID-19 was, you know, had a particularly significant impact because of, uh, you know, lack of technology, sometimes parents working multiple jobs and unable to really supervise their online learning. So there's been, um, you know, so it's definitely been exacerbated for students who are low SES. And that's kind of part of my research as well, is to kind of look at like what has been the impact for lower income uh, children and youth. Yeah, I want to come back to that because I was curious, you know, in the introduction, just reading off your bio website, it says assistant professor of at-risk learners and student success. But I know you just just made reference to like we need to trouble that that labeling of students yeah. as being at risk as opposed to looking at the system, the wider system, whether that's in terms of society or the schooling system, placing those learners at risk as opposed to so putting the onus on the students themselves. Yeah, so I was just trying to make sense of that, and I wondered. In terms of reading your bio and your own educational journey, what's brought you to where you're at right now in terms of the research that you're doing? That's a really good question. I think uh, that's something that I do reflect on. I was um, speaking to a student today and we were I, I was kind of saying this, like how much our upbringing influences our research, right? So I'm born actually in Toronto. I grew up in Scarborough, which is a very multicultural suburb of Toronto. My parents migrated from the Caribbean and I grew up in this, it was a low income area, mostly working class, but it was very multicultural. So that was, was, so it had a combination of like, yeah, low Mm -hmm. income in a sense, but also was kind of culturally rich, I feel like. Ended up in university and later on I was like, wow, you know, I realized that I was fortunate to grow up with so many different cultures that I had all that learning and that I realize now it's like you see, you know, some of the students who maybe have grown up in very homogenous communities just learning some things for the first time about different cultures. So I think that it was great for me, like learning about different cultures. And then I was always interested in that. And I think that really impacted my work a lot and also to look at pathways too, right? So I was very interested in I grew up in Scarborough, right? And so I know um, certainly a number of of students who did go on to post-secondary, but I know a lot who didn't, right? So what were the factors really that kind of were barriers for those students who were low income, who their families may have said, oh, unfortunately, we can't afford post-secondary, or, you know, maybe it's a better option for you to go right into the workplace after high school, things like that. So all those things kind of influenced me to kind of reflect, like I, when I think about the work that I do and the research that I do, I actually think about some of the kids who I went to high school with <laughs> and sort of the outcomes that I'm looking at. Okay, like, let's look at, you know, what were the pathways that, you know, made some of us uh, able to succeed and others not. So I'm really interested, you know, inequality, educational inequality broadly, and sort of what we can do as as a society to kind of mitigate those factors. So it's definitely something that I just, I see, I think my research is very personal. I do identify a lot with my participants when they, when they talk about things like, you know, being, feeling isolated in university. If you're the first in the family, first generation, like that's a huge piece, right? Because I was sharing with somebody today, for me going to university, my parents had no idea 
which courses to advise me to take. They didn't know the difference between advanced or general placement because they're they were immigrants without any type of educational experience in Canada. So I was thinking like, so for students, if you don't have that, how important the institution is. So if you're streamed into a low level, you know, as we know, you know very well about streaming, I'm sure for your your and so if you're streamed into a low level, your parents have no idea, so they don't know. And then by the time, you know, you may have graduated, it might be too late for you to make those decisions, right? Think that it's something that I talk about a lot in my my research and also my teaching too. When we first immigrated to Canada, this would, would have been in 75 from Guyana to Toronto. It, we, we I think we lived in Scarborough for maybe eight weeks before my, my father. <laughs> Only eight weeks? Yeah. Oh, no. <laughs> yeah, it was eight, eight weeks, man. <laughs> but, we, you know, with other friends and family, like Guyanese friends and family that that, that might have been there. And that before my dad, you know, he hopped in a car and drove up to uh, campus casing because he had a fellow friend who graduated from medicine from the University of Glasgow who was working in a small rural community called Hearst. So my dad drove up and called my mom and said, hey, uh, look, I'm able to open up a family practice here and they're going to help me get a mortgage for a home. And so we made our way up to Caps Casing. So but I was eight weeks in Scarborough and it seemed to me that that, you know, if you were coming from the Caribbean in the 70s, that there was a lot of community members that were there. And the education that my father would have had, and I think you make reference to this in some of your works, was the British educational system in Guyana in terms of O-levels, A-levels. And and if you're lucky enough and, and your family is able to save up, set, end up sending them to a university in the UK. You make reference to, I think, for the first time, like when I was reading, and I, I have to say, I really enjoyed reading your scholarship and, and kind of reading it over time to see you know, here you, you're working and you're building your research program and what you're addressing. And in your most recent article, Decolonial Love is a Pedagogy of Care for Black Immigrant Post-Secondary Students, you do situate yourself to talk about your parents and the difference between their educational experience and yours, and then trying to understand, as you said, you know, mm-hmm. how does one navigate? It would have been the terms that they used back in the day when I was going to high school, basic, general and advanced and advanced being university. And I remember in grade nine, I had a difficult last year in grade eight. I was in the French Catholic schooling system. So speaking French as a second language was a real barrier and being a new immigrant. But the recommendation from the school counselor in grade nine was I should go into general. And I remember my mother saying, there is no way he he can do advanced courses. You put him in advanced courses and he will do them. He's going to university. And that was my mother at the French Catholic high school saying like he's going to university and I don't think if I had a had my mother doing that I who knows where I'd be today or if I would have gone on to university or not but that's the if someone's not advocating the implications of of streaming at that point in time and you know we know streaming continues to exist today in the, the public schooling system so I was just wondering going back to your educational experiences what was it like for you then to then transition to go to university and then I've seen from your bio, you've, you did a lot of your university in Canada, but then you went to the United States. And I was just wondering, what were the experiences like going to the United States from Canada and then coming back to Canada again to work? I think if you wanted to pick an article that I would say is most representative of me, that would be me. Like, that's absolutely mm. it. So I think my parents, you know, growing up, I always heard that 
you know, they grew up, they were actually from um, an island called St. Vincent. And so okay, yeah. it's very small, but very colonial. So they had a very colonial upbringing um, where all the textbooks were British. All the teachers were British. The textbooks were like everything. So, I mean, to me, like they were definitely given a very colonial education, not anything related to um, African history, black history. They didn't learn. Everything was like you had to learn the British system. And you were, I mean, they went to school in systems where you had very severe corporal punishment too. So there's a lot of stories of my, my father tells a lot of stories about um, the corporal punishment. Yeah that he received in the schools right did, did they have the wild cane because in guyana it was the wild cane <laughs> yeah <laughs> very true yeah they do they have a, the a bamboo specific, cane <laughs> they do they have a very specific plant that they get the cane like the cane to, yeah. to spank you you know with so those things are very you know so those things were kind of with them all the time and so coming here as immigrants they came like you said nicholas in the wave the 70s wave of um okay. caribbean immigrants that came to Canada. And so they settled in, you know, like you said, Scarborough, lots of areas of Toronto had quite a lot of um, Caribbean community in there. Um, so there yeah. was a bit of that there for them. So that was one thing. But but I would say that you no, know, it was a it was challenging because they didn't know a lot about the system. So for me, my experiences were that I was was able to do well in school for the most part. And I was able to I was fortunate to have teachers who would kind of help and support uh, where my parents had a gap. Like I remember having one teacher in grade five, I think, and she actually, during a parent teacher night, she had said to my parents, um, I think Alana, you know, really has potential. She should go to university and you have to do these things to make sure she goes to university because don't do these things. She might be streamed out and stuff. And and so my parents didn't okay. know any of this, but this teacher was very kind to kind of explain to my parents how streaming worked they didn't know anything right so if so i felt like definitely i was def so fortunate and this is what i i tell because yeah. i teach in the in the bachelor of education program so i teach teachers so i i say to teachers i said you know it's so incredible because you know if i didn't have a teacher who recognized the potential in me and only saw me as like a black kid from scarborough you know caribbean background the, the most you can do is graduate from high school like if that's the way they saw me then i wouldn't have and able to just like you said you said it was your mom but like for me it was like my parents didn't have the knowledge so much so it mm -hmm. was like individual teachers who kind of took me under their wing and kind of like helped my parents kind of decode you know the system yeah, yeah. So they really did that so like I, yeah. I remember a teacher who did that and uh, I also had teachers in high school like there were individual ones who stood out who kind of would sit me down and say like okay this is what you want to do for university you need to pick three and you know I remember at the time it was like you pick three and you go you know you have to apply so I just applied to three different universities and I ended up for financial reasons I went to University of Toronto and stayed home but I'll, I'll yeah. tell you how I ended up at Cornell University of Toronto is not a bad university. No, though. <laughs> no of course not. Yeah, and and by the, that time though, uh, like when I went when I was in high school, I had made the list. I think it was like the top ten in that year or something, and my average was like the tenth highest or something. So the teachers were really kind. They were kind to me. Like the teachers were wow. were really nice in terms of directing me in yeah. that. So that was a big help. Um, having that, and as I explained earlier, even as early as grade five, like yeah. having teachers that would sit my parents down and explain 
how the system works. Like you need to take advanced courses. Don't let her take general. Like, yeah. you know, they actually said that to my parents because my parents had no idea. They, they had no idea. So I could have easily yeah. been streamed, you know, due to race and stuff. It's amazing how a teacher, and I had teachers like that yeah. as well, that were encouraging, that they encouraging you to full potential and then advocating for you to do so, how teachers mm. can be those levers, right? One way or the other. Yeah. So it's amazing mm-hmm. to, yeah. like, you, you, you sharing that, look, there was teachers there that made a huge difference in terms of where I'm at today. Yeah, absolutely. There's teachers. And of course, like, there's, uh, and I, of course, I also experienced, like, the opposite. I also experienced microaggressions. Um, so I explained, mm. um, I explained to, this is something that I've explained in public talks before I give this example as a microaggression. So I explained that I was in high school, I took math and my, my, at the time, my best friend who was sitting in my math class happened to be Asian. And so we both got 78% on the test and the teacher gives me the test and says, great job, Alana, you got 78. And then my friend who got the, the same mark, 78, she said to her, you could have done better. <laughs> you're like, so, you're like, great job. I, you, you you surprised me. And the other person, yeah, great job. Yeah. You could do better. Exactly. So th- that's a scenario that I give to my teacher candidates. And I say, well, what's going on here? And, you know, and, and so they talk about expectations and how, like, basically she's telling me, well, 78 is a good mark for a black kid you know that that good for you but then the chinese student was told oh you could do better like the expectation was that she should be getting really great marks because she's chinese so we talk about like the stereotyping that happened both ways like it's an example that i share um with my teacher candidates to kind of unpack a little bit how stereotypes can affect students right because i remember when that happened to me i was thinking oh maybe like this is what the this is the best the teacher thinks i can do right <laughs> is, is to get 78 on this test right <laughs> so you experienced that both ways where you had teachers encouraging you and yeah. then and also the, the, other, the other way, way in terms too. of microaggressions and then yeah. i mean you're mm-hmm. you're in high school and you're transitioning and you do a, a, was it a bachelor of science and then a b.ed and then an ma yes. all at all at the university of toronto was and then nicholas you know what happened to me right so after i i i, I taught so I, i'm a secondary school teacher right so and then i was for, for how long for how long i didn't teach for very long only like two okay. years like two years or so and then well that's still then that's long teaching. enough to know what it's about well <laughs> <laughs> And I went to, then I was teaching though in, um, at the, I had transitioned to be contract lecturer, a sessional lecture, something at what used to be Ryerson University, which is now called TMU, Toronto Metropolitan U. So I started there and I had run into, I was at the time I had met some colleagues who later on, like, they're still my friends. Actually, I met them and they were like, you know what? You have to go to, you have, you should go and do your PhD. But you know what they said? They said, you can't do it at University of Toronto. Like you can't do all your degrees in the same place. They'll never hire you there or it just looks like you're No, you'll never get a job or something. (laughs) And it's not true because we have, so you know, there are many colleagues who I have uh, very, at Queen's University, very esteemed colleagues who are now deans, (laughs) who definitely went to all three, (laughs) did all their degrees at the same university. But that's what I was told. So somebody said, you've got to do something very different. So I had no clue. So I just applied to, I said, well, I'll go to the US. (laughs) Maybe that will be something that's different enough, isn't it? So I did, I did that. And then I went, I take, I had to take a GRE test. So a graduate record examination is the. uh, Oh, I remember I had to do that too. I think I did the GMAT. I don't know. I think it was the GMAT I did. 
Yeah. I had to take the um, J. Yeah, so I had yeah. to take that to, to for admission. So I took that and uh, you know, I wasn't pleased about that because I had to take a standardized test. I wasn't <laughs> thrilled. But I thought, okay, I'll do this. Do, US schools need this and you plus, you know, most of the programs there you get funding anyway. So if you do okay on your test and you could be admitted. I probably got into I applied to a lot of programs, but I didn't really choose the university. I chose my supervisor who is okay. still, um, a great friend of mine. Um, her name is Dr. Sophia Villejas, and uh, she's still at Cornell University. She's actually in a in a faculty of a department of anthropology. I won't say faculty, but uh, good friend. so I chose okay. based on my who would be my supervisor, like if our work aligned and things like that. That's what I I didn't really to learn about her and find out who she was and what I did was just like what students do with you with us now right is like you, you google them like you know you look at the yeah. faculty website and then you look at the names and see who stands out to you and then you just email so I basically had emailed yeah. her and I said you know I really like to work with you I see that you do work on critical race theory like she had published something in critical race theory and like early days when people weren't even okay. talking about that yet, like a 1995 publication in Critical Race Theory. And I thought, this is cool. Like you're doing cutting edge work okay. if you, since 1995, you've been publishing on on Critical Race Theory. So that was kind of like uh, the, the introduction. So I had emailed her and then she did get back to me, which was really nice. And then I think we had a phone call or something. And I think that was, that's kind of what led to it. But it's been... Um, and, and this would have been when, like, when did you go? Uh, uh, I went 2008, so that's way back. 2008, then. okay, mm -hmm. okay, and you were there till. Well, I was, I was, <laughs> I was. I, 2008, but I, I. I don't want to put you on the spot. You're like Nick. I don't want to share. <laughs> well, the the programs there are a little longer, so that's the the weird thing is like the programs for PhD uh, students are it's two years of coursework and then yeah master's. yeah yeah it's longer like because yeah. here our students only do one year so I graduated yeah. in 2015 so you can do the math there so yeah 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 years but then I I also had spent some time as a as a session so I was teaching for a lot like when I had you taught at Cornell then when you were there yeah, no, I was actually teaching back in at TMU while okay I was wow so you were teaching and writing. doing that yes yeah, and as a sessional wow that's a lot yeah was writing and I remember yeah. I, I regret that though because I did I think there was an entire semester where I didn't write anything for my dissertation and so I do regret being kind of behind but you know I think that all in all you know worked out fine but I could have could have finished faster, but I think the programs there minimum would be like five years for people to finish. That's like yeah. the fastest. And then the average was seven years. So I was really in line with the average time to completion. Yeah. Well, the average is still five to seven in universities in Canada. Yeah. And I, I remember going to Louisiana State University and it was two years of coursework uh, to do. Yeah. They, they did count some of your master's courses, but I love doing, I don't know about you, but I love doing the coursework. I I, I did courses in the uh, the Department of Anthropology because I was, you know, I just enjoyed doing some of the courses with different profs there. And then anytime there was profs that I had enjoyed a course with, it didn't matter if I had done the coursework that I needed to do, I'd do a course with them again just to take it and read their work yeah. and have conversation. I just I mean, loved it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was a, and also too, in, um, it was, it's very different there because in order to, the, the rules there make, I think now that I've seen how challenging it is sometimes supervising doctoral students, the way it worked there is like you actually couldn't 
get a professor to be on your committee unless you have taken a course with them. So okay, you have to okay, to do that. So you you have to do oh, that. Oh wow! So even yeah. if like, even if you're done like your required courses, if you want someone on your committee, you may have to audit the course. So yeah. you may audit it and just like you know take it, you know, let them because they want to really see that you're you're dedicated as well. So I think that's also something true that also adds to some of the challenges like typically have to take a course with the professor so that was something that we yeah. had to do is like you'd figure out okay which professors would I like to work with and then take their course and get to know them and then at the end of the course then you're nervous you know hoping oh my goodness I hope I took the course with you the whole term I hope you don't turn me down you know kind of thing so I remember <laughs> that that's also a big thing like you take the course and sometimes the audit like one in one case it was an yeah. audit I didn't actually take the course but I had sat in on all the courses so he would see I was reading, you know, I read everything, did the assignments, things like that, although it wasn't for credit, but just to get him on my committee. Yeah, it's about relationship yeah. building. So in that sense, you get to know the prof and they get to yeah. know you. And But you also, it encourages you to learn about their work and where they're coming from as well. I know, I don't remember them having any kind of explicit policy like that at Louisiana State University, but I, I didn't have anyone on my, my doctoral committee that I hadn't taken a course with. So... It was, I mean, it, it makes it so much better. Yeah, you get to know them. And then, but you also yeah. like under, and they're uh, by understanding their research and, and what they do, it enhances your own knowledge and understanding in relation to kind of work that you're, you're trying yeah. to do. If, if there's a connection, sometimes it's just like this person, I really appreciate their perspective and, and their mentorship, but the, their area of expertise might not necessarily be as connected. They might be an expertise in methodology, but not necessarily that's not necessarily their area of research, right? To support you. So yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah. But I think, it, I think it makes for a better, um, I think I had a much better committee experience than some of my colleagues that, that went to other institutions where it wasn't like that. So I really do feel like it gives you a chance to build a relationship with that person and they get to know you. And then, so by the time you're working together for your PhD dissertation, you already have a relationship. So I think it's much better. I prefer yeah. that system, actually. I would, I wish we, I wouldn't mind if we had that yeah. up here because I do think it's, 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 it, for me, it was very beneficial that I, I felt like I was very comfortable with my committee members, comfortable with receiving feedback from them because I was used to getting their feedback. It wasn't like, oh, yeah. why, do you, why are you saying this? I need to change this. So, you know, so I was I was very comfortable with them. By, by that. You kind of got to know them as a potential audience too, as readers, right? Yes. Like, so you could in your met, kind of take mental note. Oh, yeah, if I'm going to write this, I know that this committee member is going to ask this question or yeah. trouble it this way. So how mm -hmm. do how you kind of anticipate that in the writing up to some extent, yes, right? Hey, so just coming back to, so you were working as a sessional at uh, Toronto Met Metropolitan mm -hmm. University. Yeah. Do, do you feel like, did that enhance the preparation to then transition to a tenure track position? Do you feel like that it was added value taking that time to do that? Yeah, I think for teaching wise, absolutely. Because I think um, I, I was able to both when they even when I was at Cornell because by but when I was at Cornell I had already had a little of experience teaching my own courses so as a teaching assistant it was very easy for me to do that work so it was, it was yeah. you know quite very easy and then for me like I think the year number of years I had as a sessional I think it really prepared me and I felt 
because the most different thing for me to do was to delve into research because as a sessional, you really don't get a chance to do that beyond your dissertation. So for me, mm-hmm. it was the, the, you know, the research was the new part. Service was also new, like that, the, the service roles that you, we, and admin yeah. work that we do. But um, for me, the teaching was like, I could hit the ground running with teaching because I, I was very comfortable at that point. I taught a lot of different courses, different learners, and, um, you know, all levels, like from teaching, been, I had taught preschool previously too, right? So teaching all the way from preschool to secondary school to different levels. And also at TMU, they had a, a school where um, they you had, it's, it's called the Chang School of Continuing ed- Education. And so you'd have a lot of adult learners, like people were um, like grandparents who would be back in school. So you got a, a chance, you got the experience teaching all different types of learners. So you got to learn how to how to differentiate your instruction for the type of students that you had. So I thought that was that really helped me to make uh, teaching pretty uh, an easy transition at at Queen's University. I have had a a really easy transition into teaching and really love it, love the students. And I've had a good experience with teaching. Well, I found it really difficult because I did uh, my doctoral studies at Louisiana State University. I did teach courses there. I taught the introduction to college study, had a lot of uh, athletes or students on probation that would have to take this course. <laughs> well, some athletes, they would take it because it's to help them. So in the first year, I remember I had, I had like, you know, Meredith Duncan. She was like the U.S. amateur champ. I had Marquise Hill played for the like several several uh, students who played for the LSU football team went on to play for the NFL and uh, so it was it was a great experience. I taught schooling society as well later on, but it was all in American context. So going so that in one sense it was great because I went as first generation immigrant from Canada to the international student mm-hmm. at Louisiana State University, learning uh trying to learn and understand an American context and in terms of what I was teaching down there. But when I came back to take the position at University of Ottawa first uh, in a bilingual context in at the Ottawa U, but, and also Canadian context, so I had students, I was using articles from the U.S. for like, and addressing like racism in the U.S. context. And they'd be like, Nick, like when are you going to start teaching some Canadian content? You're back here in Canada. I imagine for you, and I see that in your research as well, is that because... And it makes sense, you know, because you were at U of T, but then also sessional at TMU, at TMU, and I'm not sure, and also doing your studies at Cornell University, that in much of your research, you you have research projects that, that straddle both sides. Like uh, you're looking at uh, participants from the United States, but also Canada and comparing yeah. whether that's statistically some of the, the stats that are there in both countries. And then also the implications for individuals that you interview. I imagine being in that unique position of being a sessional in at Cornell helped mm-hmm. to to kind of straddle that 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 research that you were doing, or yeah, yes. And but I I was very intentional, so I actually had planned. Like I thought before I even applied to the U.S. Um, universities, I knew that I would do some type of comparative work for my dissertation. So um, what I did is I looked at Black student experiences in Canada and the United States. So I interviewed post-secondary students in both 
both um, contexts. So I think that was something that I was really interested in. I've always been, and I still am, very interested in looking at how to how different contexts may play a role in student experiences, um, particularly Black students' experiences. So I was very interested in that, and I, I'm I'm always interested in questions around identity and how it differs. Um, you know, I, I know for you, you know, it might have been different, especially Louisiana, even with as soon as you open your mouth, there's a different they know that you're from. Oh, yeah. Else. It was like, where are you from? <laughs> you know, I noticed that that's that's because there is actually an upstate New York and the accent like there is an accent yeah. that is associated with me, and I didn't have it. So I would definitely I would be OK until I opened my mouth and they'd be like, where are you yeah. from? And so that was always interesting. Was it a plus being from Canada once they found out if they asked or? Not always, <laughs> no. <laughs> it wasn't always a plus. I think, no, because I think I was like cast as an international, okay. but even like, it's weird. Like, you know how you're like, you think Canada is so close to the States. It's like, oh, we're the neighbors next, like the neighbors, right? Like, yeah. you know, the neighbors up North, but we're, we're still kind of classed as international students, according to the the way that we're defined. So oh. I think that was very interesting that I did find myself kind of like, oh, you're international, okay? <laughs> like you're, you know, you're not, you're not from from here. Um, so that that was always very interesting. Well, you, you experience that when you go like I mean, I went two weeks before 9/11, and then everything mm-hmm. changed for international students going yeah. across the border. So I had, I think I spent three hours and with the U.S. Customs. The, oh when I came back after, because they changed the visa requirements, but they didn't tell us. So I'm going, I'm trying to go back after the winter holidays and they're like, Hey, you, you haven't changed your visa. I'm like, no one told me. So I like, they asked me questions about, you know, where I went to high school, what I did my undergrad in like, <laughs> oh my like three, three hours. And then I think for the first year, every time I go back and forth, they'd be like, what did you do your undergrad studies? Like they'd ask me these real specific questions, like to double check. I would get questions about um, Cornell University, not so much like um, I would get questions as to like how I got there who's paying for it like whatever. oh yeah yeah that's the big question yeah. like do you have enough money and i'd be like well our program is funded just like our doctoral programs yeah. you know they're they're funded well they're funded in a way like i don't know if you had the system where it was like you're you're funded but then what comes with that is your ra ships and ta ships are built into it so you you basically get funded but then you have to work right like yeah it was no it was, it was the same off. it was the you're, same you're working thing to yeah. pay. so yeah. i was working as a teaching assistant and research assistant for my phd supervisor during the time so it was like so that's you know i would get questions about that in terms of like how are you affording this like this is like, how are you yeah. now how are you paying for this and i'd kind of have to explain well this is how the funding <laughs> works and i get a teaching assistantship every term and i have to do this and that and it, it comes with the stipend and blah blah and then they'd understand what was going on but but yeah that would be always interesting that it, it was always an interesting experience crossing the border and you could pretty much predict like who who would be stopped like you could definitely see the racial yeah. profiling also too because i was um ithaca new york is in upstate new york it's heavy agriculture agriculture, agricultural uh, farm uh, areas. And so they were also policing for those who were on the bus or train that had overstayed their visas or whatever. So they would always come on police and say, are you a U.S. citizen? No. Well, 
show me your ID kind of thing. So there was a lot of that. Yeah. What are you, what are you doing yeah. here? Where are you because going? it was upstate New York. And like yeah. they say, like the expression, the big apple, you know, about the, the agricultural, um, the agricultural um, areas in upstate New York, where they are like harvesting, you know, not only apples, but lots of, lots of other fruit, fruits and vegetables and things. And they rely on, on the, um, a lot, a lot of times Mexican agricultural workers who were working there so there was a lot of like policing around whether they were there legally or not so that that was a big thing where they would come on the bus or train uh to to question people about that that was interesting well i mean you say like being international too i think there you know there was a couple experiences uh when i was at louisiana state university i think the first one was that i had to go to the international office to the english second language to show that I didn't need to do the test. Yeah. So I remember showing up, I was in line and then I said, Hey, is my English good enough? Or do I have to write the test to see if I have to do this extra course? She's like, what? I was like, well, they sent me down here. I'm just following. So I didn't, yeah, I didn't have to do that. There's a couple other incidents like that. And they probably never heard of Guyana. Tell them that. (laughs) Well, Guyana or can't. Can I, I think mostly to do with my last name, Ingefuck, right? So, yeah. And uh, what's the origin of your last name? Well, it's it's a Hakka, it's a Hakka Chinese Guyanese, right? So, uh-huh. yes. Yeah. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So around Very the around the Caribbean, there's a lot of double double hyphenated Chinese names, and oh, that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. So it's it would be I my great grandfather's first and last name. So they would have been Fook okay. Fook Ing, and. When they arrived in uh, Guyana in the 1870s, a British magistrate, being a British colony, was like, your name is John Cyril, stamp. (laughs) And so (laughs) went John Cyril Ingefuck, and then my grandfather was Bertie Cyril Ingefuck, and my dad was Robert Cyril Ingefuck. And then they dropped the Cyril with our generation, like my dad did. So we're just, uh, there's three of us, and it's just Mm -hmm. Nicholas, you know, Anthony Ingefuck. So that, they, they, they dropped that. Just coming back to your your research, they just came out this week with the PISA scores, and um, and some and like lots of your re- like your research at different times looks to address that. You wrote a book chapter titled "Socioeconomic Inequality in Student Outcomes in Canadian Schools." It starts off like the intro, like the 2015 PISA results continue to highlight Canada's high standing in terms of educational outcomes for youth in comparison, and then you go on to look at what I liked about your research is like looking at the difference in terms of parental expectations in relation to kids. And then that could be a plus or a negative in terms of, of them going on to higher ed in terms of the, the stress or not around that cultural capital piece. And then this week, uh, article in the CBC says, and I don't know if you've been, people have been reaching out to you to speak to this, but Canadian students' math reading scores have dropped since 2018, but yes. study says it's not all COVID fault. So it's like Canada's math score drops 15 points, equivalent to losing three quarters of a year of learning. And they're like, it's not all due to the pandemic. What, like when you yeah, saw that article that. come out, what goes through your mind? And <laughs> how are you thinking through it in relation to the research that you've done? It is always interesting to look at those uh, international measures. And I'm not a huge uh, quantitative researcher. So, but one of the things that I think, if you look at the comparison between with the United States, right? So it's very decentralized in the States, very state driven. A lot of schools, you know, are underfunded because of, you know, education is not like 
it's very state specific, also very, you know, region specific and, and county specific. So it's yeah. very different down there. So there, I think there you can have, uh, you know, as we know, many areas of ju- that are just vastly underserved and with low achieving students um, because they don't have the, the, the resources. It's like a structural problem. Whereas I think Canada has done a better job of that, for, which we know, um, which we don't have public funding for schools is is fairly even um, where in in the United States, you don't see uh, uh, it being as even. So I think that's also, that's also interesting. Well, you could see like just coming uh, like in Louisiana when they desegregated the public schooling system and having white flight and then the opening of private Mm -hmm. schools or magnet programs within Mm -hmm. other schools. And so there's, there's that historic contest. I don't know if it was the same in terms of, Upper State New York, where you were, or in relation to the studies that you were doing, yeah, it's the same thing, and they have different systems in the states that are very different, like voucher systems. Yeah, vouchers too. Yeah, yeah. 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 after different. Hurricane Katrina, right in New Orleans, yeah, was like that's right. yeah, very, well, that was cool. experiment. That was cool. Yeah, and also charter schools is yeah. also another um, big thing too for that. So I think that the you can easily, you know, fall into very low quality schools, you know, if circumstances aren't right. And you've probably seen the movie Waiting for Superman, which is, I think, a good documentary, which um, I think that was we saw that in school. I think they showed it to to us there. Um, Waiting for okay. Superman. I don't know if you may have seen that film. I don't know if you've seen it, but it was it's all about like kids like trying to get into better schools in low income areas and they actually enter a lottery to get into those schools like the, the, the state would actually run like the lottery for them to get into those schools. I remember when it came out, but I can't remember the, I can't remember seeing it. So I don't think, yeah, yeah. but that's crazy I know, though. I know. That is just, yeah. so I think in yeah. Canada, I think we're, we're um, fortunate, but then if you look at who I know you've probably had on the podcast, I know, you know, him, but Dr. James's work, um, where he looks at specifically the TDSB, which I think he does um, that report, the James and Turner report, they do a really good job of, of looking at the disparities too. Like, although like I think Canada overall has good results, there are still disparities by race that we, we need to look at when we look at yeah. um, education. So with, with things like that, when those reports kind of come out, my thought is always thinking of, hmm, I wonder, you know, which groups are doing better than other groups because the data is presented very homogeneously, but they don't really disaggregate to say like, what area is this? Which populations are doing less well than other populations? So I think that's that's something that I think about when, when you look at these scores. It's like, could it be certain populations that we know right now, I think with, I think the high costs of housing and inflation and things like that, a lot of families are really going to be struggling. So perhaps that will show up on on, on test mm-hmm. scores that, you know, because we know that the overall, one of the key educational areas, as you, you mentioned in one of the articles, one of the key areas in education um, is that low income uh, students tend to do less well. Right. And there, there are a number of factors related to that, which I address some of them in the article. And some of them is some of the factors relate to cultural capital. Others relate to some structural elements, too. Right. Of resources and things like that. But I think that's also also just important to bear in mind. Like if you just look at the scores by socioeconomic status and, yeah. and how might this uh, shape the picture and how does immigration shape the picture refugees shape the picture things like that i think those things are things that i kind of think of when i look at that type of data is to look at individual groups 
in uh, some of your articles and, and book chapters, you also push back to debunk uh, some of the stereotyping of different communities or families or parents. So uh, stereotypes of parents not being involved or as involved in a school yes. um, or not having high mm-hmm. expectations for their kids to to go on and, and go to mm-hmm. university or college. So uh, other mothering is uh, also in terms of communities coming together to support mm-hmm. ch- uh, other parents' kids or other women's kids as a collective. In terms of like the research that you've done um, so far, what would you say would be some of the, the biggest yes. factors mm-hmm. in terms of differences that schools and or school leaders might take into consideration to support students that might be at this current moment in their lives living uh, within the context of a low socioeconomic uh, family or context uh, in relation to going to school? Sometimes like with the the families, uh, it's important to work with the families and just uh, show empathy and also respect for them too, because I think um, what came out from at least one of the studies I did where there were, we had focus groups is a lot of the parents felt like they weren't respected. And uh, so teachers kind of had low expectations for them. So I think like, you know, we, we often talk about how culturally relevant pedagogy is so mm. important and having high expectations for all the students. But when you interact with parents too, like that's that's another piece is it having expectations for the parents. Just like I was said that I had a fifth grade teacher who said, you know, your, your child can go to university, just make sure they take these courses and, and yeah. kind of give them that kind of background. So I think that's really important too, is to kind of um, set high expectations, you know, and work with the parents to, to help help with that. I think that's really important that they, they feel like they're valued and respected. And the, the comes to looking at any type of marginalized community, we talk about the curriculum all the time, and I know that's uh, an area of your expertise as well, but in uh, having a diverse curriculum is really important uh, so that students see themselves represented, that they can see that there are individuals who uh, are from their cultural background, that they see in a variety of different roles, so it's not just the person from their background is just always portrayed as the janitor or whatever that you're seeing a different range of things like being a teacher or a professor or the, the diff, or a doctor lawyer um, all different all different professions um, so that that needs to be represented in the the curriculum that you're bringing in so the stories that you're telling so I think curriculum is a very key piece for students yeah. to see themselves reflected so I think that's a, a way to support especially with underserved communities where they're, they are very aware that there's a devaluing of them and their identities. So I think in the piece too with uh, decolonial love, we talked about like, how do you affirm their identities? Like what are the little ways that you affirm their identities, even through storytelling, through getting to know the students and sharing your story, just as you did, you kind of shared your background a little bit and share that with the students and they get to share their experiences and you can kind of, show how you forge a positive relationship with them in in that way. So I think that's, that's a really a key piece. Like the whole decolonial love piece is just like going away from the colonial system of saying, well, you know, you have to assimilate and be like with indigenous populations, like you're the indigenous population, like the, and also to a certain extent, like that's what my parents were, the, their experience of schooling was like, you conform to the British system or else we need to decolonize that and kind of to value to look at the richness of all the the community wealth you mentioned community cultural wealth and things like that that are in 
Yes. Um, so many yeah, of, uh, just, of the community. Yeah. So how do you draw on the community yeah. wealth? So even though like communities that are low income, there's as um, some Solazano and Yoso, I think they yeah. they have a cultural wealth yeah. framework where they talk about like in in many communities like there there's wealth in those communities like you just find it right just like we talk about for about indigenous communities it's not just all about trauma um there's so much resist resilience and also cultural wealth like things that we can learn from that from many of those uh, communities that i think is really important so i think for teachers and everyone um you know we need to also think about how we can draw on the strengths instead of focusing on the the weakness yes. and having a deficit frame Look at the cultural wealth that comes from a lot of the students in these communities. Well, you talk about the fear of that deficit frame or the lack of respect of parents, especially in the your your article for the Canadian Journal of Education, low income black parents supporting their children's success through mentoring circles and the hesitancy around individual education plans, whereas uh, different parents from different communities might be like, where is my IEP for my child? In this article, you trouble is like, I don't want my kid anywhere near uh, an IEP because it creates a deficit lens through mm-hmm. how you're going to frame my child's education moving forward. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciated how you outlined that there and trouble the complexity of that in terms of this article. And that it brings us back to the importance of um, your most recent article about, okay, so we're thinking about teacher education and, and we're thinking about professional praxis. How do we think about the context of care for students and think through the context of care around decolonial love? I really appreciate the connections seeing you build on that and the research that you're doing. Yeah, thank you for that. I think it does come from um, the participants in many ways. I mean, it's the participants, right? And I think that's the beautiful thing. That's one of the, you know, nice things that we like as researchers is like how much our participants teach us, right? Like a lot of it comes from the the actual experiences of the participants. And then we're able to, because of um, what we're doing in our work, we're engaged in all these different theories. So we're actually able to look at a theory that actually matches what the, what the participants are telling us. But yeah, the participants, um, very passionately parents talking about like the IEP and how, so I think that is an example where I, with my teacher candidates, I'll talk through that piece and say, well, this is why some families might be reluctant uh, because of the fear of labeling. So what can you do to show them that this can be something that can help them being sensitive to some of the, the fears they may have about being labeled? Because the perception is, is that you you'll be labeled for the rest of your life, at least the life of your life as far as being a student, and that that will be a barrier for you to pursue higher education. Then in actual, you know, settings where I've heard parents say this thing, and it's always been really interesting where I look like, okay, where are they getting this from? And it, it's yeah. fascinating to me to hear that, because I think it's, it's an important piece for teachers to be aware of, because there are some parents that feel like the label, like, we already have all these labels. So I mean, you have black students right they're already labeled right and by society labels us right in many different ways and then so the IEP is sort of seen as well you're adding another layer of you know the labeling so I think that that that's why it can be seen as quite challenging for them this is why you need critical educators who can work compassionately with like the ethic of care you said to work with families to understand like understand where they're coming from and then help them to to support their children if they do need IEPs because they can, yeah. it can be something that can definitely be something that will help them in their schooling and certainly will not prevent them from pursuing higher education, right? So that's, that's something true. 
Well, and understanding the historical context of a public schooling system in Ontario in terms of human rights being a carceral system that over punishes Black youth, and then adding that additional layer, okay, well, this youth has an IEP, so of course, right? Like, it's not, yeah. it, so the, it, the, the wider context and understanding that, I think is so important in teacher education that future teachers understand that the historical context specifically, I'm just speaking here in Ontario, that when you do make decisions about the curriculum or in relation to a student, that you're aware of the historical implications for them and their family in relation to that student-specific context today. Mm-hmm. And it's so difficult, like I, I think even for myself and or, or for, for students, not to, not to forget that, hey, just because you get a C in one course doesn't mean that that's your identity marker or you don't do well in a given year in high school, that that's your identity marker for what you can do for your mm-hmm. rest of your life. But coming back to... It's so stressed That's in right. that CBC article on the PISA scores. It's like if if the school system doesn't have a certain grade for a certain year, it's you know there's such a label in terms of like the self-esteem of the system and then individuals that are within it that are impacted by that appraisal or not non-appraisal of 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 the PISA program for international student assessment. Mm-hmm. But I think like with these things with the, the PISA, I mean that's the the challenges I said there there's populations that they're missing with it, that data, right? Um so yeah. so I that's what I look at it because I, I I look at it as like okay there there are populations that are also missing from from the PISA data, right? Like yeah. to look at how the it's it's administered. There are many populations that are missing from that. So they're excluded from that as from well. the very yeah. They're actually excluded yeah. from taking the test. So I'm always yeah. interested in finding out. Like hmm, I wonder what the experiences is of those populations and what might be some gaps there. But but regardless of the international test results, there's also there's always going to be those gaps, right? Where indigenous populations yeah. um, have gaps and, and due to a lot of structural barriers and intergenerational barriers and black students will still have those gaps. So I think those are also things that I also think about when we, when you look at those scores, but I think that, you know, if they have interventions to, to improve things, hopefully think, well, hopefully some of it will benefit some of the marginalized yeah. community as well, but, but you know, it's too, it's too edged too, because if you don't have anything to assess where everyone's at, if there are students that are their their academic achievements not being addressed, you'll never know. Right. Like, yeah. and it, it, the system will just keep re- reproducing, you know, well, just keep being the system of meritocracy that it is <laughs> in, in terms of, right. in, in terms of streaming and filtering individuals into certain career paths uh, through education. Right. Look, the other article that I had a chance to read, I don't know if it was an article, it was a book chapter, but it was black school leaders in low income urban Ontario schools yeah, with Andrew Campbell. Yeah. That yeah. Just came yeah I, I was able to read that as well. And, um, talking about the difference, um, but also the responsibility and pressure of being a leader, a black leader, either in a school, I would say, even at a faculty of education. And I'm wondering how you're navigating, like, what's your thoughts in terms of current context in Ontario and school principals or VPs, but also in in terms of working within a faculty of education and where we find ourselves in the current context for um school leaders i wasn't like the first part you were asking about um school leaders in in ontario in general yeah i was just wondering like 
if you have a sense, like in terms of we're talking about school leaders and are there enough in terms of seeing black uh, principals or VPs in the schools? I, I'm, to me, I would say it's still we're not even close to having uh, enough representation uh, in terms of black principals as leaders, like black excellence mm-hmm. in, in different schools. Um, so that on the one hand, in terms of, of having that, but also the, the enormous pressure that's placed upon such individuals in the kind of work that they're doing to either advocate for others or around social justice, it, that the amount of energy that that takes, if you don't have a community that's supportive or on board or doing that work with you. That um, project really came about. It was so interesting. Like, it's just, and you know, my area, and that's where academia is one of those things, uh, Nicholas, that I don't know, yeah. because like, they always say like, okay, you need to focus on one area, right? But like, for well, me- Who says that? They do, I feel like, well, <laughs> Who says that? It's recorded, so I can't say who they tell you to, They tell you to get tenure. You got to publish in the, it, no, with the they, whatever title you, you've, <laughs> you've been hired in. <laughs> things that that has been uh, actually uh, seriously a challenge for me in academia has been like being I mean it's not just one person like several people have mentioned this like they're like oh you know your research has to be uh, you know one focused area and then that's what but like for me um, although I'm not in administration I see it kind of fitting in with like I see it how it fits but other people may not but I do I do think that uh, it's important to look at so I'm looking at black students I'm also interested in like what is it like in the schools for black school leaders? Like if they're prince, if there's a black principal in the school. Yeah. Just- I mean, like your question was what, what challenges do black school leaders yeah, face? With respect? You- oh, I, I mean, I think that, that that's the, the, one of the challenges is like they're able to get into those roles. And what is also interesting is that they are placed in higher, high need school. And this, yeah, this, yes. this finding that this is actually an overall finding that you find in the U S literature, because when I was researching this topic, I was looking at the U.S. because the U.S. scholarship in this area is like tons, you know, tons of articles, but very not as much in Canada. There's a, only a few researchers doing this uh, topic, and so what's interesting is that they are often in schools that are um, pri- like struggling schools, schools with lower EQAO scores, schools with low income. So low, so those. That's another thing. It's like mm-hmm. they, so they have this other layer of okay, I'm not only black, but I'm actually in a more challenging school than, you know, in yeah. many ways, because the, the, the school could be challenged in many ways related to maybe having low EQAO scores, low income, a lot of challenges related to the, the area and underserved community. So they're struggling with social justice, but also dealing with multiple factors that are, are also like in the community. So I think that's what makes it um even yeah. more challenging for them to kind of bring in the community, they need to work very closely with the community members and families and parents, you know, so in a way, like they're, they're a role model, but they're also in a, in a challenging situation of having to deal with so many things. Yeah, that's, you know, that's what I was trying to get at with that first yeah, that they're, question. They're in, yeah, yeah, they're mostly, they're mostly in schools where there are a lot of challenges in that, that. So it's been, it's been really, that has been something that we definitely plan to expand uh, the, the project. So we want to, Dr. Campbell and I want to definitely look at um, expanding because we, we have discovered that, you know, there are more and more now. I think a lot of the school boards are trying to support equity and inclusion by hiring more. And not only that, but there's also like in, encouraging a lot of the 
senior educators to do their principal qualifications so that they can actually uh, move into some of these positions. So it's it's been nice mm-hmm. like to see that I think, or at least I would say over the past five or 10 years, we do have um, an increase, although still a tiny amount, but still more now. I was going to say it would be great to see school boards, but not just school boards. I'm, I think universities too, to read this work, to see what's needed to ensure their success, but also their mental health and well-being. I just want to read a quick passage from your piece. You say, and it just comes back to what you just expressed. You said, on an individual level, the participants experience racial microaggressions, and on a structural level, they experience barriers to advancement, including the fact that many Black school leaders tend to be assigned to school districts with racialized populations. Many students in these racialized populations experience intersections of low socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm linguistic minority status, and other marginalized social identities. Thus, Black school leaders must navigate anti-Black racism within their school boards while simultaneously providing support for the racialized students. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the things that they find is that they, they have an additional challenge because they are in these schools that they're high need schools typically. And so they, in a way, like the they get to be a role model for some of the students, families, you know, they, they, a lot of them talk about that, like how the families uh, sometimes are just so excited and thrilled to see them. But then on the other hand, they have to think about like how they support the unique needs of these uh, students. And also like within the context of some of their schools, they do have to deal with, um, with anti-Black racism within the schools too. So they may have teachers who are working with them in the school who may be in a, a lower level than they are and they may have challenges with their they may challenge their leadership in many ways and so a lot of them address like having to deal with anti-black racism so they they've got to deal with that with the the within their their schools and also at the same time providing support for others so you're right i think that we feel like there's there's a lot of mental health supports that we feel like we're needed for, for them because I think it's a, it's a very challenging situation because you're dealing with stuff on your own and then you're also providing support in many ways like you're providing support for mm-hmm. for racialized students and yeah. that's just, and I know yeah I know there's more networks like mm-hmm. just like the mentorship circles in your other article yeah. that there are networks being created mm-hmm. across the province to support each other and then I just like one final question would be then in terms of the research that you do in work and whether that's in teacher, the teacher ed programs that you, that, that you teach within at Queens or even grad studies, when you're taking up this work, what's the, the kind of conversation and response that you have either at the grad student level with students there or in teacher education about these contexts of either working with students or and as a new teacher trying to support other teachers that are doing the social justice work or school leaders that are trying to do this kind of work in the schools that they might find themselves in the mm-hmm. future. So I think, I think that has been kind of the main thing. Um, what you outlined there is kind of like the focus of what I try to do in the Bachelor of Education program is I try to impress upon the students like the importance of having a really strong equity lens um, to look at like students' multiple identities and think about how important that is. Also thinking about the families, communities that they come from and how important that is for them. So I think it's really important to like for students and I think at the um, Bachelor of Education level and as well as as for the graduate programs, although the graduate programs we might get into more in-depth scholarly reading about some of the theories around, you know, like looking at 
cultural capital and looking more in-depthly at some theories about racism or looking at critical race theory and how that might pertain to education. But at the B.Ed. level, too, it's about um, having a strong social justice orientation uh, to your students to where you are looking at the importance of it in all aspects. So it's just like the everyday, like I, I talked to them about, you know, the thing is you have a classroom, but every day you're making decisions. So it's you're making decisions every day. So how are you making decisions that challenge racism, you know, ableism, you know, all the different yeah. isms that we have it, when you're doing assessment, when you're doing uh, your curriculum, when you're choosing which speakers to have at your school, all those things I think fit into like be mindful in question. So for students, I think that's the whole thing is just developing a very critical consciousness around uh, social justice. That's kind of where I'm at, um, because that's kind of the focus of my work is to look at how do we develop that critical lens so that we can, you know, whether it's school leaders or school teachers, it's important for the, us to have that. And I think, I mean, we know this, um, you know, university administrations need it too. Oh yeah, right? it's so across the board in all yeah, sectors. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. in all sectors <laughs> yeah. kind of look um where are where are the the inequalities and what can we do to to mitigate those yeah. things so you can look at something and look at like where where are the inequalities so what's going on here and what how might you support the the particular population and help that particular group because that there's always going to be these uh, individual and group differences and in working to kind of level the playing field for everyone is something that we should all be working towards. Alana, thank you so much for taking time tonight to join us on Fukin Conversation. Your your work, I encourage everyone to go read it, Decolonial uh, Love, uh, but also in terms of uh, the intersectional approach that you take in thinking about class and access to uh, different opportunities, uh, race, gender. Your research really, really embodies that intersectional analysis and critical race theory. And so I'm hoping that uh, some of the listeners will take the time to go look at your work. And I know it's going to make a difference uh, in terms of school board policy, teacher education programming, and in terms of us trying to reimagine the kind of schools we want to live and work and teach uh, within. So thank you so much for joining me tonight on Food Conversation. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you so much. It was an honor. Thank you so much uh, for inviting me, Nicholas. It was a wonderful conversation and just looking forward to reading and listening to the other podcasts as well. I'm going to, I noticed that you have a website with all of them there. So I saw some really amazing ones there. I'm like, <laughs> yeah. I know these people. So some of them will be really great, but thank you so much. It was such an honor. I mentioned that I was nervous because I thought this is so, such an honor to be on your podcast. So I was well, the honor, the honor is mine. So thank you.